Hello, welcome back everyone uh, to Ladywood, the podcast. I am Lynn Sternberger. I'm here with my friends Brandy and Sita. Brandy and I have seen Deadwood before. Sita is a total newbie to the universe and she always brings some very enlightening thoughts. Virginwood. <laughs> Virginwood. <laughs> that's, that's my All right, we'll go one. with that. We'll go with that. Uh, my name is Sita Shong. I am a, a comedy writer and a stand-up comedian. And I'm Brandy Sperry, also a writer in Los Angeles and co-host of the Downton Gabby podcast. We are discussing the third episode of the first season. It is called Reconnoitering the Rim. That's such a kind of hard word to say. Yeah, reconnoiter. And they say it like 17 times. Thanks for volunteering me to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Written by Jody Wirth, who is not a lady, uh, even though his name is Jody. And directed by Davis Guggenheim, who also directed the second episode. Yeah. I imagine that they are shooting these in blocks. So, in this episode, competition arrives for Swearingen in the form of the Bella Union, a new gambling outfit from Chicago operated by Savvy Cy Tolliver. Hickok puts up precious collateral in a poker game with McCall, and a threat from Brom Garrett regarding his gold claim invites harsh consequences. The relationship between Bullock and Swearingen continues to worsen over the latter's suspicions of Bullock's and Hickok's intentions. This is a lot of talking around what's actually happening. We'll go right. through it. <laughs> we'll go through it, though. I'm just so happy that the Bella Union folks are here because I love Joni so much. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't get a ton to do for a few episodes mm. yet, but she comes swooping in with that top hat with the train coming off of it, mm-hmm. and she's positioning herself as an equal to these two men who are also opening a business, and it's just like... It's a fucking nice surprise to get a new, cool female character on episode three. I'm into it. I was watching it with uh, my wife, who, like Sita, has not seen this series before. And she was like, wait, is she a business lady? (laughs) I was like, kind of, yeah. I mean, she's a madam, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure, business lady. (laughs) That counts. She has a great line straight out the gate where Alteragin says, pardon my French, and she says, I speak French. (laughs) That was great. She is letting them know that she views herself as an equal. Now, whether the men are going to tolerate that too much, if she has her own opinions that go against theirs, we will see. Also, they're just so clean compared to the whores from the gem. <laughs> like, yeah, the horse comes riding into town. Their skin is, like, there's no dirt on them. They look like they've had nice meals for months. Mm-hmm. They, it's just, like, such a difference in, I guess, quality of goods. But, you know, I don't want to <laughs> describe that. As my wow, refrain yeah. is always quality just, goods. Yeah. My refrain is always just these poor ladies. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they are they are fancy uh, prostitutes. Yeah, and I think these ones you have to we have to say prostitutes. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, that is the distinction. And I think at one point, Swearingen says, "I think I'm up against some specialty acts." So I don't know what those are, <laughs> but they do specialty acts, Sita. So fancy, fancy. Wow. Another character who gets a little bit more to do in this episode, who I think we'd met previously because he's always burying people, um, but Reverend Smith. He's a favorite of mine. I love Very this guy. Very interesting character. But he's, yet again, we open on him burying another man that that Bill Hickok has, has shot. Right. It, isn't it interesting how Bill can ride into town and be like, I'm out of business, I don't do this stuff anymore, and then just kill multiple people and yet still be like the upstanding guy that Seth is like ready to die for practically. <laughs> that everybody's extending credit to. Char- yeah. Charlie is worshipping... Yeah. I mean, this is what fame gets you, I guess. 
Um, but yeah, so the Bella Union rolls into town and uh, unloads all of these new characters that we're going to get to know. And then we see this really affects Al Swearingen because he didn't know this was happening and he's got to know everything that's happening in Deadwood. He's very irritated. I love the guy that sold them the place, running out of town with all of his belongings <laughs> that he packed up in the dead of night, yep. promising that he has, you know, plans in place so that if Al tries to kill him, that he's thought of everything because he knows how Al's mind works. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> just a small moment. But I just love that, like, you can feel that stuff was going on in the background while we were watching the past two episodes that we didn't know about yet. And also, he's, like, right to right to be terrorized by Al. Al yeah. has terrorized everybody in that town. I mean, he flat out says, Al, you would have killed me before you matched that offer that Cy gave me in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he knows that the threat is on his life. It's not about money. It's about Al asserting power. And it also kind of occurred to me that Al's kind of like a... Didn't any of you uh, read Foucault in college? The yeah. the panopticon. He's a fucking panopticon, right? He's always like looking out his window down at the town, making sure things are going correctly, and he's got eyes everywhere. Eyes so everywhere. Yeah. So people have to act. That right. little balcony is like key to the way that he runs his universe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it becomes sort of like a go-to set instead of just his interior office. So glad we could get a Kim K. Anna Foucault reference in. <laughs> this is a very classy show. <laughs> uh, it also gives us the opportunity not just to see Al thrown pretty seriously off his game for the first time, but it introduces us to the ugly suit, which I think is very, very noticeable. Like, very, it's worthy of mention that hideous like mm. black striped suit that he I guess got during his worldly travels or something his Sunday best that he has yeah. to put on to go over there yes. and check out the fancy competition exactly I mean I'm a fan of Al in his dirty long johns I feel like that's <laughs> when he is at his most Al but this is a he, he's definitely getting fancy to uh to meet the neighbors what I like about that scene is that while Trixie is helping him get ready He's actually talking about when he and Dan like first built the gem, mm-hmm. which I think that's the first mention that we've heard that Dan actually helped like establish the gem, yeah. mm-hmm. and yet somehow is just the henchman. But so he's getting himself up fancy, but he's talking about how he can, you know, get in there and with the best of them and just get dirty as well. Like he really wants to believe himself capable of anything. Uh, I just thought that was an interesting conversation for them to be happening while he was reluctantly putting on this suit. Well, and that comes back later, too, because when he's coming, uh, when he's having that conversation with Cy about, like, the history of Deadwood, you know, when he mentions to Trixie that he was there digging up the dirt, like, building the saloon in the first place, he's mentioning to Cy sort of, like, how this town came to be and how long he's been there, essentially asserting some type of historical control over, like, this town that Mm -hmm. Cy doesn't really understand, like, the implications there I think is like you're a newcomer you're a carpetbagger yeah. like like I've been here I've been driven out by the US government and I came back so mm-hmm. I, I like that little like flash from him of like insecurity yeah we're definitely getting deeper on elsewhere and Jin uh, in this episode not just that but with the mention of the Pinkertons he's finally intimidated by something mm-hmm. uh, and of course he isn't one to like take things sitting down he definitely is just like oh I'll murder you problem solved so that's still very elsewhere engine of him but i think it's great to see that he's in a place of insecurity 
um, and vulnerability to some degree, uh, and he's not above the law entirely. Speaking of that suit, when he asks uh, asks Trixie how he looks, Trixie says, you look like Christ crucified, and I was like, that's a compliment? <laughs> what? <laughs> I really paused to consider that, and I was just like, I have no idea what, I don't what this means. means. <laughs> I have no, I have no clue. <laughs> I think the actors were probably also like, what? And so that's why he puts his arms out and out <laughs> to, into, into the, like, the spread arm, like, Jesus he, crucifixion pose. He looks more like Christ crucified when he's in his dirty laundry. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I don't know, Trixie, whatever is up with you. I was like, half dead by the Roman soldiers? What You're are we saying? I don't know. I just don't know. I feel like it was supposed to be a compliment, guys. I think it was supposed to be. I just don't understand her mind. I we're, we're probably missing some information <laughs> here. Sure. Maybe that's a thing they said back then. Yeah. Another important uh, stroke that we get in this episode is uh, Hickok's uh, increasingly bad hands at, at poker mm. and the way that he has uh, become addicted to the gambling table. We get to meet um, McCall more in depth, which is this guy with the cunt eyelid. <laughs> 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 that, my yes. favorite line. <laughs> your, that hooded eye of yours looks like a hood on the gun. <laughs> Sita is like dying right now. Meanwhile, I was like, this is my least feminist. <laughs> okay, but Brandy was funny. <laughs> when your mouth moves, it looks Can like it be a both a least fo- feminist, least feminist moment and the funny thing? Yeah, of course. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Just see deliver the word cunt so often with such with such seriousness I think was I know and the way it's shot like McCall like flinches every time <laughs> <laughs> the actor that plays McCall Garrett Dillahunt yeah has had such an amazing career after this like really really I'm, he's, a, he's a really good actor yeah which we'll see when he shows up in a second role in listening to this 14 years after it there. <laughs> but uh yeah so Hickok ends up putting his guns into a pot he ends up winning the pot which is a, a good thing for him but they've had this like heated exchange and we can tell that there's unfinished business there some business that does finish though is that uh Saul and Seth finally get to buy their lot after going back and renegotiating and renegotiating I feel like I'm I was actually wondering why Al gives in and finally sells to them in this episode. Is it just because he's like, I gotta focus on these Bell Union people. I can't have these people coming into the gym asking for the hardware lot every week. Yeah, I think it must be that. And also after EB makes his confession that he's the one that organized Mm -hmm. to have the Bell Union move in. And it's not what Al had imagined, a huge conspiracy between Bill Hickok, the Bella Union, and Seth. I think that happens afterwards, though, but maybe he suspects it at that point. Oh, I thought that the deal closed after he received EB's confession. He saw EB coming out of the saloon, too, before, um, before I think, talking with... Uh, Seth and Saul, right? Yeah. So, so I think that, I think the seed was planted. He's, he's already put it together, but we yeah. haven't uh, seen it. 
seen him confront Evie about it. Yeah. And I think the interrogation or the negotiation was part of a sort of feeling them out and seeing how close he was to the truth. Because right. he already had like a little piece of it, watching Evie come out of the saloon. And then um, he just, I think, wanted to do his due diligence, as is what this episode is about. We also hear that Saul has been like negotiating with him. Right. Um, even though it feels like no time has passed between episodes, I guess we're supposed to believe that a tiny bit of time has passed so that they've negotiated. I feel like the, the only terms. way I can tell that any time has passed is that Trixie's face is healing. Yeah. <laughs> That's really the main thing. It, it's gone from like purple to yellow. <laughs> yeah, so it must have been about a week. Yeah. Right. One thing I will say about that negotiation, and ultimately they come to terms and they pay and they've leased the land, is that originally Swearingen, out of, I think, like, anger over mm -hmm. what the Bell Union has done says that they're not allowed to sell to the Bell Union workers and then once they close the deal he changes his mind he's like well if you're just selling them your regular quality goods or whatever <laughs> how many times can we say quality goods in an episode <laughs> but I love it. you're allowed I was like oh that's like kind of respectable for Swearingen he's like you can do your business yeah Google he gave in a little business. bit I think yeah. there's a point at which he wants to not seem petty like he wants to have a veneer of fairness over his control or magnanimity way. am i saying that right yeah, he wants to seem know. he wants to seem generous it's this whole scene is is interesting to me the way that he conducts himself because in the end he really does give them a decent deal after all of that mm -hmm. right yeah and he doesn't own the 50 percent that was the origination right? of the deal which was a terrible deal that's a shark tank deal yeah <laughs> in perpetuity that was a kevin deal grudgingly sure. <laughs> respecting these men is that what's happening i think that's kind of what's happening interesting well because i i think there's also a little bit of they're gonna be here to stay mm -hmm. they're not just prospecting and they're they want to you know set down roots and they want to be the general store so maybe al's repositioning himself as thinking of them as not even allies but somebody he could find useful in the future yeah especially now that a real enemy has rolled into town yeah yeah but we're also not talking about the cutest scene ever which is hickok's uh what's his number charlie one Utter. charlie trying to set up dinner between seth and hickok that was adorable <laughs> This courting sequence I was obsessed with, um, and especially when, like, they know that that's what it's being played as, and I think yeah. Charlie even says, I feel like I should have brought posies. Yes, yeah. yeah. They called it out. I love that. <laughs> the way the scene is shot, too, there's, like, a long pause of, like, Seth walking across the, the floor that they built for the hardware store after the dinner invitation has been <laughs> given, and he's like, let's do it tonight. <laughs> a different version of Deadwood than the rest of That's the Because I'm here for it. I'm here for all of this romance between men. He's like so tense and then as soon as it's like, but do you want to have dinner tonight? He's like, he smiles. He's like, yes. I would love I know. <laughs> it was the first time I saw Seth like legitimately excited about something. He's always so sour about the, the lot he's been right. But then they close the deal and they just they have to cancel dinner to <laughs> so, and then the star building. Charlie has to deliver the news. He's like, Bill, I'm sorry, dinner's off. And then Bill finds a solution. Right. Which I love that. Bill's like, Well, don't they need help building the store? It's I beautiful. Was like, it was like date is back on. Bill made it happen. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> oh. Brotherhood. 
man friendship. <laughs> Love it. So actually, I I wanted to say that uh, I think that what those scenes all demonstrate is that this show did something that shows don't do a lot of anymore, at least in my opinion, which is like show decent individuals, Mm -hmm. decent Mm -hmm. men. And it's not just like one decent guy. It's a whole lot of them. And it doesn't mean they're not complicated. They don't make bad decisions and stuff. But Charlie Utter, completely decent. The fact that he is leaving and he says if you need me to come back i can bring goods with me Mm -hmm. to help you with your store he doesn't have to do any of this stuff he's just being decent and wanting to set bill up with the others and sort of like to inspire bill to be more upstanding or or whatever bill Bill kind of falls into that category despite the fact that he's a little sidelined by his addictions bullock and saul have always been presented as upstanding guys and they they continue to be and it just seems like decent dudes in TV dramas are harder to come by these days. Like, for example, I think in our first episode we talked about Westworld, and I was thinking about that, Mm -hmm. and it's, I mean, it's an easy parallel because that is also premium cable, that Mm -hmm. is also sort of, like, got the Western dressing to it, and I think we only get maybe one decent dude on that show, uh, Bernard Arnold, who is also... A robot. Spoiler alert! (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I'm just, like, tired of anti-heroes, so I find mm-hmm. those moments of, like, men being mm-hmm. decent to individuals very refreshing. Well, I also feel like friendship as a concept, and male friendship in particular, is given such short shrift in prestige dramas. Like, nobody's really friends Completely. with each other. They just mm-hmm. have loyalties of one kind mm-hmm. or another. And these guys, they're not loyal because they're all in the mob together or because one of them owes the other money or whatever. Like, just, they're just loyal because they like each other and it's and it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I think in the absence of having more female characters, the the male characters' relationships with, with each other can take on, like, more complexity. Mm-hmm. Because whenever you introduce romance, that kind of goes into, like, a very simple template kind of thing. And what we're seeing between Hickok and Seth is kind of a prototype of a male... I don't want to call it a romance because it's a deepening of their relationship and to see both of both parties try to pursue mm-hmm. a friendship that's interesting to me i've never seen that on tv mm-hmm. i've been mean, especially between two men that mm-hmm. like have this very like masculine like who drew first that kind of mm-hmm. relationship so i i liked seeing that and it was like wow this is is completely kind of missing on tv now I think it is uh, delightful that our feminist podcast is because, especially in the episodes where the women aren't given tons to do, this is another one of those, um, but we've found this through line of male romance <laughs> so that we don't have to talk about heterosexual shit. <laughs> but it's it's not like we had to find it. It's there. It's, it's, it's part yeah. of the backbone of the show. Yeah, Absolutely. it's written that way. Well, here's a man who could use a friend and doesn't have one. Poor Brom Garrett. No, oh, Brom. <laughs> I, we shouldn't laugh over his demise. But what a fucking idiot. What a fucking idiot. <laughs> he really had it coming. I mean, he was ill-prepared to live in a place like Deadwood. I mean, his wife knew what was going on. It's painful to watch her try to warn him without mm-hmm. actually like saying the words, you're going to get yourself killed. Because what what use would it be if she actually said that? 
I don't know if she's even played it out that far that she thinks he's really going to get killed, but... I think she she knows that he's going to get bodily harmed. I mean, she's been watching Swearingen from uh-huh. her little window. Mm-hmm. I mean, another weird, like, panopticon for mm-hmm. Alma, you know, mm-hmm. watching everything. So she, I think, fears for bodily harm at, at the very least. It was weird because there's two scenes between Alma and Brahm uh, that stood out to me. The first one being when he says he's going to confront Swearingen and demand his money back, and she's like... Oh, honey, just gotta take a walk first, you know? And it seemed like she might have a sense of the danger that lurked there. Um, but ultimately, she's like, yeah, sure, go talk to Swearingen. Get your money, get our money back. And I, after that scene, I was like, oh, did she kind of knowingly send him into harm's way? Because mm-hmm. she definitely seems to know more than he does about the way that this town works. But the second scene was when he says he's gonna go reconnoiter the rim at Swearingen's suggestion. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, the wheels have completely turned. She understands what's happening and the risk that he's putting himself in. And I was like, oh no, she doesn't want him to die. She's And she's like, let's cut loose. Let's say we had a $20,000 adventure and go home. And and maybe it's a more sober moment for her, like a, a Mm -hmm. a better moment of clarity. But I mean, he is just played as a total dummy i mean the scene where he tries to hire bill hickok to help him get his money back he's just he they call out how much he's completely missing the point of the danger that he's in where charlie's literally like the last guy in my room Mm -hmm. was murdered and there was a blood stain on the floor over this gold claim deal that you are pushing out on and threatening to bring pinkertons to town over and everything else like you're gonna get yourself killed so it's really not a shock when Al mm-hmm. issues the order to make it look like an accident. Mm-hmm. Poor Dan. <laughs> Poor Dan. I think he's annoyed with Brom though. He doesn't seem like he mm-hmm. like is having a crisis of conscience over this particular murder. <laughs> he didn't want to kill the little girl, but Brom, he's like, yeah, I'll push that. <laughs> <laughs> he had like a cartoon death off a cliff. <laughs> I forgot that he didn't die at first, and when it when it panned down to him at the bottom of the cliff, I was like, oh no. No, oh no. <laughs> like, the little twitching limbs yeah. in the wrong directions and stuff. I mean, this show really took it there. And yeah. then the fact that Ellsworth has seen this, I had mm-hmm. kind of, I had kind of forgotten that that happens. But did you, did you guys notice that he has the dead man's dog now? I think it's the dead man's dog. He's inherited the dog. Persimmon the, Phil's dog? Yes, he has Persimmon Phil's dog. I find it funny that there's a guy named Persimmon Phil, because that's like a weird fruit to be named after in the West. I mean, there's no persimmons. <laughs> I love like, it. I don't know if it was based off of a real dude or if they just were like, let's give him some weird fucking name, but I just love the little details like that. But it's like having somebody named like Mango Maggie. <laughs> like the Mango West. Maggie works at the Bell Union. It's such an exotic fruit. That's all. <laughs> One other thing about, like, reconnoitering the rim. I'm a, I was a little confused why they chose to do this at sundown. Right. Um, I was like, if you're going to look for gold, which seems, I don't know, hard to find to mm-hmm. begin with, why would you do it in the dark by lantern light? That just also seems very, like, dumb of Brom to be like, yeah, sure, why not? We'll just go out with our little lanterns and find the gold that's coming down. Do I need climbing gear? <laughs> oh, a pickaxe? Okay. I was really surprised after he asked that and and Al said, take a pickaxe. I was like, oh, well, maybe, you know, the pickaxe is going to accidentally end up planted in his skull. Mm -hmm. I felt like that was a plot move that they could have followed through on. But um, 
yeah, reconnoitering the rim after sundown, totally, totally dumb. And maybe because they had to film it at a certain time? I don't know. To work into the plot of this that had to happen in the evening? It's, this didn't even occur to me while I was watching it. Just, <laughs> it's so dark and menacing, but you are totally right. Yeah, I guess maybe they were think uh, Dan was thinking about the other claim guy, too. Because in the morning, Ellsworth is there, so they couldn't do it in the morning. And Dan had to somehow talk Brahm into doing it at night. And that's the only thing I can think Did we have any favorite quotes? I have one. And this one I just felt was very relatable. (laughs) And it was uh, Al to E.B., who is definitely a bit of a nuisance in every episode. Oh my god, he's the worst. But Al said, do not repeat back to me what I just said in different fucking words. And I was like, yeah, that is totally, I'm irritated by that. The the whole scene where he's trying to like rally his henchmen, he's also really angry at them because one of them has farted in his office. (laughs) (laughs) I love that scene. I mean, how do you make this, like, Shakespearean language about, like, he literally utters the line, I want to know who cut the cheese. <laughs> he says it with a straight face. But guys, it's thematic. That is also betrayal. Yeah. Who went behind his back and cut the cheese? <laughs> who went behind his back and cut the deal? I mean, that's, I feel oh like God, so true. we're not drawing the parallel clearly enough. <laughs> and it was E.B. both times. And doesn't he demand that they all start showering more? Or, or he's not and showering, he demands that if they need to fart, they have to go out on the balcony in the designated area. I think that is the Bella Union kind of making Al step up his game. Yes. I mean, he just looking at his unwashed masses of whores and henchmen versus like this squeaky kind of clean Bella Union, like almost like a luxury, like like a sofa towel in that town, you know, compared to the gem. Yeah, totally. So it'll be interesting to see, to continue to see how the Gem Saloon and its inhabitants uh, continue to react to the presence of of the Bella Union. We didn't spend a ton of time in the Bella Union. We know that they've got their own equivalent structure Mm. where Cy is kind of the swear engine of the union and then he's got his dope fiend and he's got his gambling guy. I love parallel uh, worlds uh, in a show. I love it because it's it's exactly almost kind of the same setup that Al's got, but Cy's got his own power and he's from Chicago and we know Chicago ain't like the nicest place on earth. So that's going to be really, I'm I'm excited to find out about the Bella Union. That's all. Tita's also allowed to say that about Chicago because she's from Chicago. I'm also from Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Do not write in. So we wrap up the episode with an interesting moment between Al and Trixie as she's helping him shave the calluses on his feet, which is such a like weirdly intimate yet disgusting thing. When when I was watching it, I I think I just kept... I think it was so funny that Al kept saying to her, not too deep, because it was a double entendre for me. And then when when the scene played out, um, I think Brandy brought up the really good point. Is this a sex scene that got rewritten as a foot callus scene? Right, Like, and they just kept the same dialogue. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe. Maybe they decided that this was something that you'd never seen before on TV as I mean, well. it is an act of intimacy. Like, it's not sex, but it is something that you would not allow somebody that you didn't trust to do to you. I mean, this is the second episode where we've had Trixie and Al kind of capping out their relationship in the episode Mm -hmm. with an act of tenderness. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just wondering, what is the hang up with these two? What are we supposed to be taking away from it, you know? 
And also, I mean, yeah, it's disgusting that she's shaving his feet, but it's very, like, Jesus-like. And that and the <laughs> Christ crucified thing before yeah. it, I was like, what is... What's the show saying? What <laughs> so are weird. we trying to get at here? Al seems like the least religious or, like, the least uh, Jesus-like of, of everybody. So there is an interesting moment with Trixie in, in the show that I wanted to bring up. Uh, and it's when Dan is talking about the gold that he found after he threw... Uh, Brahm's body off the cliff, right? So he hides where there's like a vein of gold or something. He goes to Al mm. and he tells Al, like, Brahm's really struck it rich, too bad the fucker's dead, whatever. And then when that conversation's occurring, we cut back to Trixie, who is essentially overhearing this on the balcony. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting that, like, does Al know that Trixie can overhear everything from her balcony? Because I assume she left the room and then went Yeah, out. it is a little am ambiguous, like, how much she's hearing, but mm -hmm. it, the implication is, like, Trixie knows more than, than I'm usually might think she does. I'm usually irritated when um, there's, like, convenient, oh, he saw the murder happen from the bushes, uh -huh. or, oh... She learned the important information because she was next door and, and eavesdropping or whatever. But, I don't know, in a town that's, like, tiny and everybody lives on top of each mm -hmm. other, I feel like they, they buy it more. Yeah, and I think, like Sita said earlier, like, they make it a theme, like, who's watching who at different times. So you end up buying it because you have this sense that, like, no secret is going to stay secret for long. Yeah. And also with someone like Trixie, it's like she's being underestimated, right? True. Then the other significant thing about that scene is just when she, when she does go back into the room after that conversation is over and she asks, do you want me to start in on the other foot? The last word of the episode is Al saying, yes, please. I think it just reveals that he really does think of her differently than the other women who are around in the gym. Is he trying to change his ways because the Bella Union showed up? Is he trying to be like yeah. more gentlemanly? None of the whores over there had their faces beaten in, so, you know. <laughs> That's yeah. true. I don't know. They confuse me. But maybe it's just because we don't get a lot of them. We just get these sort of out-of-time, out-of-place moments mm -hmm. between them. I'm okay with it being confusing at this point because it does feel like it's both of them have weird feelings towards each other. It's not just being used to, like deepen or muddy his character or make him seem like mm -hmm. he's a better person than he is mm -hmm. they both clearly have a weird relationship with each other it's reciprocal hmm. even though there's an, obviously the power dynamic stuff going on there yeah when does he say to her every beaten i've gotten i've i've thanked for or something along those lines when he's kind of like looking at her face it was basically him saying that, like, every punishment he's gotten, he's learned something from. And it's yeah. almost like him relating that advice to her. I don't know. That's kind of condescending. I mean, not that he's... He is I a mean, condescending it is condescending. Man, but uh, I, I, I think it was supposed to be, like, we're learning more about Al. Like, mm -hmm. he had a rough childhood. Like, everybody had a rough childhood right. in this freaking show. But that made him the man he is today or whatever so she should take it in stride that she gets her face beat in yeah, is that a I good thing know. to be the man he is I today i don't know <laughs> so let us hope that next episode the ladies get just more more to do calamity gets out of babysitting jail um let's hope alma gets out of her room <laughs> let's hope <laughs> trixie gets uh i don't know more than a foot shaving scene 
Um, until then, you can find us on Twitter at LadywoodCast. Um, we're also on Tumblr and ladywoodpodcast.tumblr.com. Precisely. And we should be in the iTunes store if they've approved our foul mouths and um, feminist uh, recapping of, of Deadwood. <laughs> yeah, I crossed my fingers that that has happened. And uh, until then, I'm Lynn Sternberger. You can find me on Twitter at Lynn Sternberger. I'm Brandy Sperry. You can find me on Twitter at WeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. And I'm Sita Sean. You can find me on Twitter at SlowBear. S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And thanks for listening. There's a land beyond the river that they call the sweet river. And we'll only reach that shore by fate's decree. One by Maybe.